Well, hello and welcome to Finding Our Way, our Southridge Church member podcast designed to give people the inside scoop on life in our church. Here's our host and lead pastor, Jeff Lockyer. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another edition of Finding Our Way. Uh, so glad that you're joining us again today as we continue in a bit of a, almost a, a mini series here with our podcasts, tracking with our church's message series called Aftermath, where uh, we're focusing on uh, trying to kind of recover and regain our footing coming out of the pandemic and specifically in the podcasts, focusing on how to how to kind of shepherd and pastor people through this sort of pain. And the last couple of weeks, we've had a couple of our Southridge pastors, uh, Mandy Casper and Carrie Jones, join us. And today we've got uh, a member of our board of elders who I'm hoping can get even a little bit more clinical uh, on how we can, as communities, navigate the disproportionate mental health challenges uh, that our people are facing. And so I want to welcome here uh, one of our Board of Elders members, Joan Hyatt. Joan, you've been here before, but welcome back. Thanks, Jeff. Uh, before we dive right in, do you want to give us a bit of an update on how things are going in your world? How's your household and your work and stuff these days? Yeah, the family's great. Um, we're, we're all healthy, which I'm grateful for. Um, work's going well. We have a vacation looming, so that's exciting. Um, yeah, it's good. It, it feels good to be back at, at church in person. And we're, we're just excited generally about what feels like a movement toward, um, I would say normal, but I don't think anything's normal, but back to, um, feeling more connected to people and such. Hmm. Is your vacation out of the country? Are you crossing borders? Yes. You are. And I'm going to bet, a place where there's sun. I bet that I bet that's exciting. Has it been two years for you? Uh-huh. Yeah. 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 And um, you know, it's it's not without some anxiety, I would say, but um we're looking forward to just having a week to read and sit by a pool. Fantastic. My dream week. Um Joan, one thing that people may not be aware of, especially if they're listening outside of Southridge, is that uh, recently you had rescinded your position as the chair of our Board of Elders. Uh, do you want to talk about what happened? Was there a falling out or a blow up yeah. or did you just protest? Sure. What, what, why did you relinquish that seat? Did I retire? Um <laughs> That's only a joke for people who know me because I am retiring this year from my um, work world. Anyway, no, Jeff, there was nothing that really happened, so to speak. About a year ago, I said to the board that after nine years, I felt that it would be a good time for me to step down and give space to a new chair. Um, I think it's really important to transition leadership sometimes and make space for new and different ideas. So that's that's really what it was about. I'd been doing it for nine years, and it was time for a change. Obviously, to those of us at Southridge, we know that Teresa DeFighter uh, now has stepped into that role. Do you want to talk about the process of how she ended up assuming the, the chair and kind of the baton pass between the two of you? Sure. 
Um, probably um, a year ago, January, I said to the board that I, I would want to step down. And so we had some discussion amongst us um, and felt that Teresa probably brought the best set of skills and talents to the job of chair. And so she agreed then that she would take over this past February. And so for the past year, um, Teresa's fundamentally shadowed me. She's joined you and I in, in um, agenda setting meetings. She's been um, alongside while well, she and I had some difficult conversations with folks. So in spite of the fact that she brings a ton of skills with her, we've, we've made this, I think, a relatively easy transition. And since we both really love coffee and she's got a great back deck, we've, we've done a lot of connecting. Well, I was going to ask, like, how have you been sort of supporting her, maybe coaching her, sharing experiences of your nine-year run uh, in order to kind of orient her or, or acclimatize her to the role? How's that been going? You know what? She, because she shadowed for a year, she's, she's really brought um, kind of herself into a pretty seamless transition in February. But we, um, as a board, as a whole, we communicate often and regularly with one another. And Teresa and I probably are doing a little bit more of that. But um, she hasn't needed a whole lot of coaching. She's a pretty skilled woman. So having kind of been at the helm of steering that ship for almost a decade, I guess my, my final question on this, and then we'll move on, is how's it being a regular board member these days? Now that you're not the chair, is it weird to participate? Do you love it? To describe that experience. Um, weird, weird would be one of the things. When anytime we've done something for nine years, um, it gets to be a bit of a habit, right? Um, so it's it's been a little bit, probably more of a transition for me, maybe than even for Teresa, to back up and and um, make sure that I'm not overstepping. But I love being you know, connected to this group of folks. They are really great people. So um, being a, what did you call it, regular board member um, feels great, feels good. You haven't had to catch yourself taking over, uh, yeah, throwing yeah, her aside? Yeah, I think you were there for that. But Calling yeah. for votes when? <laughs> Occasionally there's a, you need a seconder kind of comment but other than that we're good well that's great it's been yeah. uh, been neat to watch and uh certainly in the spirit of us wanting to you know empower new people and embrace a, a, a broader diversity of voices uh watching that handoff has been really encouraging and cool to be part of uh let's dive in then joan to the subject of of this conversation because like i said earlier Throughout this teaching series, as we come out of the pandemic, we've been t paying closer attention to just where people are at, the challenges that they're facing, and especially the mental health struggles. And I know that we've looked at it uh, for a couple of weeks from kind of a pastoral angle. I'm looking to you, not so much as a, a member of our board of elders, but as a, a clinical family therapist and to bring some of that expertise uh, to the conversation to help not only our members who track with the podcast, but also leaders listening from across the country and beyond. So from, from a, a, I guess, a more of a clinical perspective, 
how would you say that the pandemic has affected or maybe accentuated people's mental health challenges? Oh my gosh, it most certainly has. Um, I read something recently, now it's an American study, but they said that mental health needs had increased 80% over uh, the last year. And certainly COVID has ramped up lots of things. People who were um, pre-COVID were dealing with anxiety or depression seem to have certainly had it exacerbated by the isolation or by the anxiety of the, the virus itself. There's been an increase kind of in people's use of alcohol and substances that we've seen. Jeff, in my practice, every one of my clients who had a substance abuse relapsed in one form or another during the last 24 months. Hmm. Um, and that, I'm told by other colleagues in the field, is completely in keeping with their stats. Hmm. Um, as I said, depression and anxiety are up. Readjusting to um, even opening has caused a new type of anxiety for people. The other thing is that COVID meant that things got shut down. So, for example, mental health programs at the hospital that were day programs that supported people weren't available, and that became problematic. Um, things like AA and NA did a great job of pivoting into a Zoom format, but it's still not the same relational connection that's so, so important for people in recovery. Um, they did a great job, but it was different. So there's been lots of lots of things that have caused other people problems, bereavement, isolation, loss of income. All of those things have triggered pre-existing mental health conditions. And in fact, for some people who've never had existing health problems, it's it started them. Hmm. So, yeah, there's lots. Well, to that's what I wondered. Like in in your office, obviously, this is a, a, a confidential setting uh, in your clinical space. But in your office, just by description, like w what are you seeing these days that you didn't see or didn't see as much of two years ago? Because obviously I, you, you experienced some of that, you know, yeah. in, in, in your visits two years ago. But what, what, what's different about two years later? I've been in private practice for 28 years, Jeff. And in the last two years, I have had more connection to suicidal ideation, people thinking about suicide, um, people who are dealing with the grief of a completed suicide, um, in, in the last two years, I've had more of that than I had in the 26 years prior in total. Um, suicide has been a very high issue. Um, there's been, as I said, an increase in depression, an increase in anxiety, more than I've seen before. And the other thing is that there's been a lot of relational conflict, um, Conflicts that are in friendships where people are feeling broken and abandoned. Um, conflicts in families where there's issues over masks and vaccine status and things like that where, where um, there's just a load of, of conflict and conflict management that 
again, as you said, this is what I do for a living, but it certainly has increased. And I'm wondering, what would you say it is specifically about the pandemic that's contributed to this, that has contributed to such a rise in these kinds of mental health challenges? You mentioned, you know, things like the, the physical health anxiety, the economic, you know, job loss, sure. things like that. Um, and the, the lack of in-person supports as kind of compounding or exacerbating it, AANA, things like that. But is there anything else just about the nature of the pandemic itself that you feel like has contributed to this? We are a society and we are a people who love to know and understand and be able to plan And for many, many people, the loss of stability that the pandemic provoked um, has been just huge. Um, There's there's been a tremendous amount of fear um, because of misinformation sometimes or because of just the kind of ongoing transitional information that we get where at one point we know something and then it changes and then it changes again. That inconsistency for many people is really, really problematic. They just um, need a solid place to land and stand. And it hasn't really been available for two years. Yeah, so it's less a lack of control and more just the chronic uncertainty that has destabilized people, you would say. Well, I think the chronic uncertainty provokes a... uh, lack of control. And then anytime people feel out of control, they reach for things that they think will provide them with that control. So it may be a substance or it may be just the need to win the argument. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great description. Um, I want to press into some of these weeks that we've addressed as a church. And again, we've talked about them pastorally, how to experience God in the midst of them. But I'd love to to kind of equip both our people and leaders listening with a, a bit more clinical, kind of technical expertise. So let, let's focus on week one, where we just named the reality of trauma that so many people had uh, through the pandemic experienced a degree of trauma, were probably recovering from or, or now experiencing some some form of PTSD, this kind of thing. I guess, technically speaking, Joan, just for all of us, what is trauma? What are we talking about from a clinical perspective? Um, The APA, which the American Psychological Association would say that trauma is a response to a deeply distressing or disturbing event that overwhelms an individual's ability to cope and causes feelings of helplessness, diminishes their sense of self, and their ability to feel like their emotions, their full range of emotions or experiences. Um, Jeff, trauma is a really pervasive problem, and it it results often from an exposure to an incident or a series of events that are really emotionally disturbing or life-threatening. They get in the way of an individual's functioning, both mental, physical, social, emotional, and spiritual well-being. It messes with people. Messes with people isn't clinical, but it's true. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, for, for garden variety 
Jesus followers or non-clinically trained church leaders, you know, whether we're a, a pastor, board member, small group leader, you know, kids ministry worker, youth, youth leader, how, how can we tell if someone has suffered trauma or is, is suffering from or, or demonstrating PTSD uh, in their, in their life? How, how do you know? Um, that's a great question. And, and one that those of us in the field, um, struggle with sometimes the, how do we know question is really about asking people how they feel and what they can tell us and then lining up their signs and symptoms with what we know to be typically true of trauma. So maybe what I'll do is give you some sense of what those kind of key signs and symptoms would be. Um, people who experience trauma often have constant tiredness. Even after they've had a really good sleep, they're tired. Um, they would express headaches and general body pain. They'd have difficulty sleeping, difficulty falling asleep, and then having restless sleep. Um, often would talk about nightmares or insomnia, um, would experience emotionally um, some sadness, some anger, maybe denial or fear or shame. Again, those feelings get um, kind of exacerbated or diminished, depending on the individual. Um, in terms of, of Social behavior, they may have some difficulty with relationships. They may experience some social outbursts. Um, physically, they might experience nausea or dizziness. As I said, altered sleep patterns, change in appetite. Um, and so th those then lead, all of that kind of together leads to things like PTSD, which for, for people who don't know, is post-traumatic stress disorder, um, depression, anxiety, sometimes disassociative disorders, often substance abuse problems can, can be um, included in there. I, if, if you're seeing someone at home who's having trouble eating, having trouble sleeping, having trouble expressing their emotions, um, you, you're going to want to check in with them and, and begin to talk about what might be provoking that, what's triggering that. And if they can talk about their trauma um, long enough to name it, that's a good thing. There's kind of a split world professionally on whether or not you make people talk about their trauma. There's some um, who would argue that, you know, recounting a trauma is kind of like pulling off the scab and just making it worse. Um, and others who believe that recounting the trauma actually um, diminishes it. So, you know, it depends on, on who you're talking to. Um, my practice is to help people identify the trauma and then begin to work on how we can make those symptoms lessen and therefore give them better quality of life until they're able to process the trauma in a healthier format. Hmm. And for those of us who don't bring a, a clinical training to the table, uh, 
what would be the best way to serve and support someone through the experience of trauma or through PTSD beyond advising them to book sessions with someone like yourself? Yeah. Um, with, with anyone who's experienced trauma, you need to give them time. You need to let them talk at their own pace. Um, it's going to be important not to pressure people. That just adds to the stress. It doesn't diminish it. You need to focus as, as someone who cares on listening rather than talking. Um, if talking fixed it, that would be lovely, but it doesn't. Probably important to, not probably, it is important to accept their feelings, um, not blame them or criticize them for their reactions. Often we find that using the same words they use is really, really important to kind of paralleling and accepting where they are. Um, don't dismiss somebody's experience and don't give advice that you're not asked for. Those would be the things that I would suggest. Okay, those are great. I hope we're making notes on those because I think that's that's really helpful. Jeff, um, the other thing, the other thing that I would say, sorry for interrupting no, you. Go ahead. Other, I would say is, as a supporter of of someone with trauma, um, you want to accept and in fact expect that you yourself will have mixed feelings because when you're going through the emotional ringer that they're going through. You have to be prepared for those kind of mixed feelings, some of which I, I at least don't ever want to admit. Sometimes it's frustrating and aggravating and annoying. And just remembering that negative feelings toward the person you're supporting doesn't mean you don't love them. It just means that you're human and you're gotta, you've got to process that too. Very good. Um... The second week, we talked about grief, and I'm sure that's one facet of the traumas that people have experienced, especially inflamed during the pandemic. Um, Do you want to talk specifically about what you've seen kind of from a grief perspective, some of the most common aspects of life that you're seeing people grieve and and from again from a clinical perspective the best way for for kind of lay people you know garden variety local church leaders to come alongside and support someone through their experience of grief yeah if we understand that that grief is when we lose anything very often and frankly all too often people assume that you only get to grieve if someone dies Grief is about the loss of something that you value and that's important to you. And so um, I have seen people grieve because they haven't been able to attend important dates like funerals, but also like graduations or like um, being unable, grandparents being unable to go to the hospital to meet their grandchild or people have grieved the loss of a job or the loss of just the social connection with their work colleagues. They've, they've grieved the loss of finance. They've grieved, and I think more often than anything, they've grieved the loss of hope, that sometimes people just feel hopeless. And in the middle of that, they start to experience um, symptoms of grief that 
you know, grief isn't an illness. Grief is just evidence of love or valuing something. Um, but again, when, when we're grieving, um, we often have eating, sleeping, connecting difficulties. Sometimes we eat too little. Sometimes we eat too much when we're grieving. Sometimes we sleep too little. Sometimes we sleep too much. Um, yeah, people often will withdraw, become socially and emotionally kind of numb. Um, so it's, it's a scary time for people. In terms of supporting that, um, a guy named Alan Wolfelt, who's probably North America's leading expert on grief, says that we don't help people get over their grief. We companion with them through their grief. We just come alongside, and that would be the role of, of a family member or a church member, would be to come alongside and be with someone. And sometimes the most valuable part of being with someone is just your presence, not your comments. Um, going for a walk with someone and just letting them be and talk at the rate that they want to talk, um, providing support so that they don't have to think about some things like maybe the laundry or the dishes or how to cook or what to cook. But it's about companioning. Grief is one of the things that really doesn't require clinical skill. It requires love and it requires a willingness to just walk alongside. Hmm. Joan, a bonus question along the lines of grief, and it might even tap into the, the, the larger umbrella of trauma. I've come across many people who have experienced legitimate struggles, losses, hardships throughout the pandemic, who it seems, I'll just say it this way, have a hard time appreciating or validating other people's grief and struggles. So, mm -hmm. you know, a person loses their business. They have a hard time being sympathetic to someone who's devastated over losing a graduation. Or do you know what I mean? Like, Absolutely. And and how do you how do you incorporate the 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 different categories or the different rankings of grief and trauma that different people are experiencing? Because it feels like that ranking and dismissiveness is part of what's dividing us right now. Yeah, yeah, good point. Um, the, probably in the in the grief world first of all grief comes in as many different packages as there are people um jeff i've seen people who have been more emotionally distressed and grieved over the loss of a pet than over the loss of a parent um and that's that's their experience and we need to honor it um but you're right there there it it feels difficult to be sympathetic to somebody who isn't experiencing their world the way we would experience ours. And for some of us, it's about resiliency. Some people just cope in a, in a stronger and faster way. And so we expect everybody to do it the way they do it or we do it. Um, but the truth of the matter is that it, 
for different people, it's a different experience. And we just need to be honoring of people's experience and empathetic to the degree that we can be. I had somebody come into my office who was devastated and really, really clearly very upset. Um, I assumed that there had been a death in her family. Um, when we finally got to talking about it, she explained that her sister had stood her up for lunch. That's not grief in my world. That's disappointment. But in her world, it was grief. And, um, you know, after two years of being kind of locked into a very tiny world, there's a lot of things that can be very disappointing. I don't know if that answers your question. No, but- that's super helpful. That That's, that's, that's really great. Um, so in two weeks, because I know you've talked about some of the relational stuff that we're going to be addressing this Sunday, uh, but in two weeks, we're, we're going to talk just about the general weariness. We're going to name that. And I think that taps into something you've alluded to already, the, 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 the sense of uncertainty, the lack of control, things like that. Um, is there anything that you want to say clinically just about the, the degree of weariness and how weariness contributes to our inability to cope, our difficulties in relating in a unified way, et cetera? Uh, speak to that for yeah. a moment. Yeah. You know, I I don't know if it happened for you with your three, but with my two kids, um, they had a saturation point for tired. And and after they hit that saturation point, they just were not happy people. And um, I think that the weariness of a protracted um, virus and this this time period has has really cost us... um, the, the college that I belong to, the um, CRPO, says that, that the biggest um, group of people who are experiencing weariness right now are frontline people. So I, the therapists, the nurses, the doctors, the um, folks who work in frontline shelter work, that kind of human services connection, um, those people are tired and and um, that just is challenging. I I don't know how to say that any differently. I really think that people understand that this is a new kind of tired. This isn't a, I worked really hard yesterday and I'm tired today. This isn't a I studied really hard for exams and my brain is tired. This is a kind of overcoming overwhelming weariness that that just doesn't seem to go away. Yeah, that's a great comment. I I, uh, I wish we had another half hour uh, or another, what is it, 25 minutes? Your sessions are 55 minutes. Is that true? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. But we're, we're kind of running out of time. So maybe we'll have to have a part two to this conversation. Really appreciate you being here. I guess, Joan, knowing that the, the church members from Southridge and the leaders from other churches that are listening and tracking with this conversation, would there be any final kind of encouragements or challenges, especially from a therapeutic or, or like a clinical perspective when it comes to supporting people in our communities through these increased mental health challenges in the pandemic? I think there's kind of seven essential things that I use all the time for 
all kinds of mental health things. Um, so if I could, those, those would be things that I would suggest for everybody, um, which is get more sleep, do some exercise, eat healthy, get outside in nature, practice the art of saying no. It's okay to say no. Um, and for those of us who are believers, to spend more time with God and to practice some regular, if not daily, then at, or weekly, at least hourly moments of Sabbath to, to stop and breathe and trust that, that we will get through this. And I know that was a slogan, but I believe it. And I hope for it and pray for it daily. Fantastic. I would say, especially to members listening, if you could use uh, some support from a clinical therapeutic perspective, reach out to someone like Joan or have Joan direct you to, to other options. She's a great even resource uh, for, for other professionals that can come alongside and support you. Certainly as a church, we want to take this seriously. And I hope that the leaders listening are taking this seriously in their communities as well. Uh, Joan, thanks so much for being here. Appreciate you. Appreciate your contribution to our church as a board member and also the, the, the therapeutic contribution that you make through, uh, through your business. We really appreciate you and, and uh, you spending some time with us. And to all of you who are tracking with us, uh, appreciate you joining in with us again today. We'll see you in seven days as we continue finding our way together. Take care, everybody.